When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Unheard Ideas. I'm Freddie Sayers. We are doing something a bit unusual today, or unusual for us, which is we're doing an emergency discussion given that Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister, has stepped down. We will now have a leadership election for leader of the Conservative Party and new Prime Minister, and everyone is very excited about it. The corridors of Westminster are full with chatter, and we wanted to see if we could zoom out and try and take a bit of a different perspective beyond just the leadership speculation or the process or whose team you're on, does this moment actually signify something philosophically? Is it of historic importance? Does it mean that the populist experiment or the the realignment that was contained within that has somehow run its course or was never going to work anyway? Here to help us understand that and try and dig a bit deeper, I'm pleased to say we have a wonderful panel. Claire Fox, Baroness Fox, um, who is, uh, you're a cross-bench peer, is that right? You're non-aligned. Non-aligned, that's, that's a different um, uh, kind of title. Aris Rusinos, um, many of you will know from former YouTube Unheard videos. And joining us for the first time today is Unheard's very own Will Lloyd. Hello. Hi. Claire, can I just start with you? <coughs> you were saying on the way here that weirdly the atmosphere inside the Palace of Westminster, at least in the working bits, is kind of humdrum and a bit ordinary today. Well, I think there's undoubtedly a sense of anticlimax to a certain extent. There's groups of people standing around clusters like some, you know, student union, you know, plotting and who are you, which side are you on? And I watched the speech on a collective TV, there's not very many of those, um, with a lot of Lib Dems who were, you know, and panting and all the rest of it and it was like very difficult to concentrate because the hatred for Boris Johnson amongst some camps is so intense but that was it really and then the debates in the uh, chamber um, the the main one House of Lords chamber the main one today was on sewage and it was perfectly important but it was like you realise that the important business if that's the important business but I was actually thinking that I'm involved in the schools bill debates very critical of that particular piece of legislation going through. I was gathering my papers, thinking about what I was going to say next week at the report stage where we have to vote. And then I thought, well, what's the point of this bill? There's no schools minister. I mean, what what do you do? I mean, they've just appointed James Cleverly, but he will have even less familiarity with this piece of legislation than anyone before him. And there wasn't much attachment to it from um, Nadim Zahawi, I have to say. So is there, do you think, a little first lesson there, or first thought, which might be 
how little, how disappointingly little it actually matters in a strange way that somehow kind of changing the cost list at the top of a government like this, which is not really powering forward at great speeds, you know, should we be cynical that it will make any difference at all? Look, I think it makes an enormous amount of difference. I just was suggesting that Parliament and the palace, as it were, is a bit humdrum. I mean, there's lots of, um, as I say, frenetic, febrile chat, but that's not politics as I would understand it anyway. I've never thought since I've been in the House of Lords that that's where the politics that matters is happening. And just to, just to throw this in, just to get maybe the conversation going, I was standing around College Green and a older guy kind of came up to me and he said, oh, you're, you know, Claire Fox and I voted uh, Brexit. And, and anyway, he choked up and he said, is it all over? I mean, is it finished? We've been sold out, right? And he was like, he wasn't the kind of guy you'd think would cry, but he was tearful. Then a young guy came up and said, oh, you're, you're that Brexit woman, aren't you? And he said, I'm absolutely furious. It's a coup. They won't let out. You know, Boris was our guy. And, and they weren't traditional Boris uh, um, voters. So I won't rehearse the whole argument or discussion I had with them. But I think it means different things to different people, this. It's hugely momentous because those Lib Dems I was standing with, I can assure you in the House of Lords, think that's it for Brexit, right? That's it. You know, populism's done with. They sneered at me standing there, you know, like, you're one of them. We're going to have our day. So despite the, the matters of governing and the legislation going through, this, I think, makes a very big difference to politics. And we can. that's what we're, I'm here to talk about. I'm going to come... Back to you in one second, because there's a lot to pick up there. But Will, yes. we're doing some scene setting here. Mm -hmm. You were also in Westminster last night. Yes. Uh, you wrote a little piece about it on Unheard. Yes. And the atmosphere then there was quite different. You weren't talking about sewage and carrying on with normal business. There, there was a sort of extreme level of excitement. I did not have one conversation about sewage yesterday. Um, but I was there with the sort of below decks, sort of apparatchiks, the spads. Um, and there were all sort of Tory party um, functionaries, and they were delighted. They were incredibly happy that Boris had gone. Um, you know, was, as you said, you sent me out there to go and report on this. It was a very tough job. I had to drink quite a lot of champagne. You know, it was it was very hard. Mm. Um, and why are they delighted? I think what was what's interesting for me is that even you know as far back as last year, or as far back as 2019, Boris for these people was essentially a sort of crowbar. He was something that could um, Parliament in 2019. And the crowbar has ultimately gone rusty, has outlived its usefulness, um, and the relationship was transactional. And I think that goes from MPs all the way down to the kind of people I was hanging out with, mm. and they've had enough. Do you not think there's also this, you know, you're hanging out with, as you call them, the kind of below decks contingent. Mm. The depressing thing is how they're all just loyal to their master mm. or mistress, ultimately. Mm. And so there's this sort of apparent loyalty, but beneath it, every single member of the cabinet, every single junior minister ultimately yeah. wants to be prime minister. And their little team kind of wants that too. Mm. And so you get a moment like this and it's everyone can be hopeful again for a few days or a few weeks that yes. maybe they're going to get a moment in the sun. Do you, did you observe that? Possibly a moment in the sun, but I do think that also the last few months have been personally very stressful for people very tiresome for them. Um, uh, one, one young woman said to me, you know, how many sex offenders can we actually, can we have in the party? And it's, I think it takes a toll. And I think people have their friends and their family saying, you know, why, why are you involved with this? It, it was getting to that kind of stage. And, you know... Uh, so it's depressing for them. I think it was depressing for them. And I think it was very much a case of feeling like, you know, um, uh, the fish's head 
who'd rot, you know, the body was rotting from the top. Mm. It was that kind of thing. And they think that if they just, you know, decapitate, then everything will go back to normal, everything will be fine. Obviously, you know, not really not. sure that's the case, given everything that's coming down, down the track. You know, the train is coming towards us, you know, with inflation mm. and all these other things, cost of living. Um, but for now, or for last night, they were delighted. Aris? Yes. I want to bring you in here. You wrote for Unheard a, I think we could call it excoriating, obituary of Boris Johnson. Yeah. Sum that up for us. I mean, you basically feel like he had a moment of promise, which he squandered. Absolutely. I think he was... Uh, fate had granted him a historic role. Uh, you know, he had, a, he had a historic mandate for almost total reform of our dysfunctional state, which is what Brexit was all about, right? People didn't vote because... No one voted for Brexit because they care about the single market or Polish plumbers or whatever. They voted for Brexit because they felt that um, the British state does not function to its full capacity, that things, the political system just does not work. The Westminster system does not work. And Boris, in some ways like Trump... Uh, in what way like Trump? Because people bandy that around and... I'm always not quite convinced by that, but in what way is he like Trump? He's like Trump in that he represented a massive jolt to the system, that he could just come in and wreck it and uh, rebuild it in a, in a way that, that functions better for the vast majority of the population. That was so, the promise. That was the promise. So, you know, all these things like, oh, you know, Boris doesn't uh, abide by Westminster's, you know, customs and codes and, you know, all the, all the taboos and kind of, you know, petty... Uh, uh, rituals of Westminster. That was the exact point. Like, people are against Westminster as it currently exists, right? There's a huge amount of uh, dissatisfaction with our current political system. So he did the wrecking so, bit, but didn't do the rebuilding bit. Yeah, so he, you know, he was, uh, he was put in place with creative destruction. He did the destruction, but not the creativity, unfortunately. He was just entirely unfit for the role. He had no vision, he had no philosophy. He had no conception of what the British state should, should be or, you know, what his function uh, within it was other than just staying in power for the sake of it. Can I just defend the now ex-Prime Minister for uh, once? I'm just going to take that role since it doesn't seem to be that popular around this table. Was he really that much worse than previous Prime Ministers, than previous politicians? I mean, people say as if it's point of fact that he was a liar. I mean, we kind of have come to expect a certain degree of lateral relationship with the truth. It seems to me quite striking that he has been removed by his own party after an enormous, less than three years after an enormous victory, for nothing in particular other than being a bit shit, as they see it. There's no big issue. Okay. What is it? Mm. So the whole thing like, oh, he likes, oh, a politician who likes, wow, what a, you know, <laughs> what, an, what an eventful crisis. Like, I, I honestly would not care if he just lied repeatedly to Parliament and the nation, if he was openly corrupt, anything, as long as he was competent. But he wasn't competent, and that's why he had to go. But so all this stuff about, you know, all the, like, ridiculous party gate, you know, like, did they share a packet of crisps, you know? <laughs> like, it's all absurd. The whole Westminster rigmarole, he was, he was put in place to kind of, as his bulldozer would drive through this empty froth, and he completely failed. But, that's did, why but did you think he was ever competent? Because, you know, everybody... You know, the Max Hastings of the world, yeah. they warned us, they said, you know, Charles, even Charles Moore, Boris will always let you down in the end. No one had any you know, doubt, no one who voted for him had any doubt about his character yeah. and his personal failings. But 
Was he less competent than Theresa May, than Gordon Brown, but, but, but I, than I, the previous prime ministers? Yeah, I know, but this is like a, a, a box-ticking exercise, and I, I am actually completely in agreement with what yeah. you've said. I mean, the thing for me, although I wouldn't maybe use the word competent, the thing for me was that he took the mandate as a sense of entitlement to do anything that it ended up being mm. were not the kind of promise that people felt that Brexit offered. And, you know, when you consider... The, the, you know, Brexit was never an end. It was a means to a means to, you know, yeah. like it, people never understand that, you know, all the kind of Remainers who say, what what have you got to show for Brexit? But it, this was a kind of de- democratic flourishing moment. An opportunity was given. As you said, I never thought he deserved it. I didn't think he had the character for mm. it. And I always thought he was incompetent. But history gave him something, mm. right? And he, as all those people who say he squandered it, that's really true. And I think the reason why those voters that I spoke to today were upset was not because they'd ever really... I mean, they, they're worried that his removal means the end of the promise. Mm. But it's not that they were kind of saying, he's a great guy, I loved him. They, they, All the frustrations that we've had, and we, of course, have had the whole lockdown, suspension of civil liberties, but we've also had the COP26 celebration. You know, all these things that people are going... What's that got to do with anything? That wasn't what we were expecting. So what I think we have had is not that he um, could be held to account for things which, as you've indicated, historically corrupt, lying uh, heads of state aren't necessarily like the shocker from the locker. If there was this fantastic vision for a free society, if we believed that he was a free speecher, if we believed that he was going to uh, actually bring around a massive upheaval in the way that democracy was organised, or economic growth. All of these things just never, it just like dribbled away. And so what we were asked to do was to say that his sort of, you know, different kind of politician meant that we just had to indulge his narcissistic tendencies without the benefits of a philosophy that you could point to. So it became untenable to say, I defend Boris as Mr Brexit because he started to diminish what Brexit would mean. It seemed to just mean Boris getting his own way on things. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, sorry, what was Brexit about? Brexit was about a fundamental popular dissatisfaction with the British state, Mm. with the function of the British state and its direction. And, you know, he had a mandate to radically reform the state, and he just presided over a period of just permanent crisis to no end at all. Right. So it's your, your, it seems like your critique is kind of lack of vision. But what Claire is saying is, is in a way that he kind of went soft. You're talking about COP26 and suspending civil liberties that people thought they'd in, in elected a, either a conservative or a radical. And instead, they got a kind of same old well, centre one, one could argue about what the vision would be. What I'm saying is people didn't recognise in those things the kind of vision that they meant. And he was never really thoughtful. So it was a done deal, you know, a minute to midnight the planet's going to go up in like people are thinking oh I didn't realize we'd invite you know we'd voted an environmentalist you know that wasn't kind of part of the the, the sort of radically reform the state I'm in the house of lords you know what's what's happened the house of lords nothing stuff full of people like me I mean where was that big reform agenda gone any of the possible things that could have happened haven't happened and I'm saying that he um, anyone would say well he was just about to start doing that Claire and then we had this pandemic but of course, during that pandemic, we saw the suspension of civil liberties, mm. all of this well documented by Unheard, and a silencing of anyone who tried to query it from a very centralised, sit at home, sit on the couch, give up all control and do what you're told by these experts. And this just, 
it's not, I don't even want to get into what one's attitude to COVID was. I'm simply yeah. saying that any kind of promise that you would be central to the changes, which is what I think the populist revolution, it was I mean, the that's opposite. overstating it. Instead of giving people more power, a they sense of power, power, they got less but we, power. We should have known, you know, when he wins the election, where does he go? Where does he go on the train or in a car or whatever? He goes up to Sedgefield, to Blairland, and, and sort of repeats the 1997 um, uh, Blair, what is, it, what is it like? Sort of, you know, the sun is out again, or whatever. And for me, that was like, oh, okay, that's mm. a bit of a bit of a danger sign. And on something like environmentalism, I mean, because we're effectively dealing with a person who's a, a sort of cipher. You know, look at his father, huge environmentalist, and look at his wife, huge environmentalist. They just go and do it. Okay, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to intervene again here because we were all there three years ago in the election of 2019, and it did feel like something quite momentous had happened. It wasn't quite up there with the Brexit referendum of 2016, but it was near there. And I think Boris was quite intrinsically intertwined with that moment because Theresa May had also gone up against um, Jeremy Corbyn. And although there'd been movements, she hadn't won to the same degree. There was something about Boris's strange ability to appear to be a different person to different people that meant that he was uniquely well positioned to unite these very different kind of groups of the coalition and win that majority. So the, the Brexit supporters of the North who thought it was one thing and the Brexit supporters of the rich Tory shires in the South both saw Boris Johnson and saw something slightly different. So that magic shouldn't be dismissed uh, alongside, in a sense, it's the flip side of his personal failings, isn't it? It's his sort of lack of visible yeah. single backbone but it was quite crucial to the whole victory in the first place you made you, you made a, a point about you know one has to be careful about what we mean about the trump thing i i, I was very sympathetic to the idea that he was almost um he almost became the embodiment of the saving of brexit because it was saving it and you have to remember what the mood was like in 2019 it's why i made the extraordinary decision for me at least of standing for the brexit party which was never in my my game plan at all because I was so terrorised it was going right and I didn't know what to do and I did something like mad that was going to wreck my life which it did and it was like one of those things where you think if we don't do this they're going to stop Brexit it's like really going to go and as a consequence Boris Johnson takes the helm and because he's not your traditional politician people did the most extraordinary thing which is they broke with generations and generations and generations of never voting for the conservatives so when an upheaval happened the political realignment was possible right. but i think that one of the things that i suppose we all well i'm i'm very conscious that i want to avoid is there is a danger as well is of a psychodrama here because it is the case that his character he has squandered it i want to hold him responsible but i also am aware that from the very moment that he was elected, there was a determined effort, just as there was with Brexit, to discredit him. And this reminds mm. me of the Trump thing. So it was like mm. he was elected with an 80-seat majority and everybody said, well, he's that's not legitimate. People were going for him. So the reason why there's sort of some suspicion about him having been, uh, you know, upended in the way that he has is even though I can see that he has to take responsibility for it. People can see it as a key because they know that even when he wasn't doing anything wrong, people were determined that Boris was a, a, a populist who represented the... Tr I mean, I, I, I've sat in the House of Lords from the beginning that I got there. And people have said Trumpian culture wars, you know, representing the worst instincts of people, you know, playing the do dog whistle, playing to people's backward instincts. 
the majority of people, and that was Remainer, by the way, backbench Tories, Labour Party and Lib Dems, effectively hated Boris because of Brexit, mm -hmm. which made it quite tricky when you were trying to critique Boris, mm -hmm. not as Brexit, but as, you know, the you know for the online safety bill or for some but, other atrocious so thing that he was bringing those in. Those people are celebrating today. Right? Yes. So, so I think... That is clear. Yeah. And Will, you've done a special study of the centrist dad yes. as a kind of political archetype. You've written about that. The centrist dad today is having a great day. Yeah, the, the, the wicked populist, all of the unseemly business is behind them. We got Rory Stewart and uh, Alistair Campbell celebrating on their podcast. And no doubt all of the those people who kind of really feel power is rightfully theirs yes. will be feeling hopeful today. Doesn't that make you feel a little bit peaked? Um... No, because I've started to think that it's interesting the word psychodrama, you know, I've started to be so disappointed with this government um, that I've, I've sort of come to the realisation that maybe some of these people were right about some of these things. Oh, wow. Not Ooh. the centrist dads so much, but there's a there's a thing Roy Stewart said in an interview in 2014. And he said, you know, the secret of modern Britain is that there is no power anywhere. And I think we can see with this government that Boris couldn't find it. And all that was left was the psychodrama. The psychodrama I think, was the point of the last three years. You know, it's interesting with Brexit, because Brexit, I think Claire's got a really good point here, which is that because Brexit is so associated with Boris, you know, Brexit c'est moi, you know, with Boris, mm. I do kind of wonder whether he's, he's not only the person who made it happen, and it definitely wouldn't have happened without him, but I, I feel like he probably is also the gravedigger of it, because he's been so irresponsible, and the character is so wrong, that I so think he's possibly also doomed it, and that may be his role in history. To both, you know, float the balloon up and then, then pop it. Um, so you're looking ahead a little bit. Yeah. Then. Your forecast is that this kind of revenge of the centrists moment. Oh, it's coming. It yeah. Feel, it's not because we, we've been promised those before. There have been moments they've been waiting in the wings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you feel actually it's an it's an open goal now, and they might try. They may get bored of podcasting. Roy Stewart may get bored of podcasting. Tony Blair may get bored of running his ideas factory. Um, these people are perennial. In British history, I mean, you know, there's uh, Lloyd George wanted the Centre Party. I mean, this is it's been going on for centuries. I'm going to have to disagree that I mean, you know, how did Boris get such a massive mandate which he then squandered? You know, how did he stay in power so long despite everything? Because his voter base, the majority of the country, despises his political enemies who are the centrist dads, who are the, you know the sensible, you know, voice of uh, continuing. The old system, the way everything was, you know, nothing can ever change. Uh, that popular dissatisfaction, even anger, has not gone away. Mm. Right? So, you know, John the Baptist has uh, left the scene, but there may still yet be a, a populist messiah waiting in the wings. Okay, so what you, you think you, Boris it could have been the man destined to clear the way for the, the, the true one. Well, you see this, like, going back to American politics, you see this with, you've got DeSantis, who's basically Trump, but more competent, mm. uh, which, you know, conservatives in the, in the US are watching his rise with anticipation, liberals are watching it with fear. Do we have a similar figure? Probably not, not at the moment, but, you know, the, the background dynamics haven't changed. And yeah. in the same way as, in the same way as fate or history, whatever you want to call it, you know, vomited up uh, Boris to his position, someone else will come to fill the moment. Claire. Yeah, absolutely um, important to note that that's why to concentrate just on one man, even though it's inevitable. I mean, first of all, he didn't he didn't deliver Brexit. I mean, in 2016, it was more. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Of a hindrance and a helper, mm. actually, and that's not what happens in terms of that vote. I know that he then became the vehicle through which, in 2019, it got saved from being squandered. Mm. I do understand that bit, but I, when you were saying, you know, Boris and Brexit, it's it's his enemies. He's tried to claim it as his, mm. and his enemies trying to associate it. For those of us who know that neither of those things are true, it's very important we make it clear. But anyway. Brexit always was a different moment than people thought because it was about leaving the EU, but it was so much more than that, as I tried to indicate, you know, written about and endlessly and so on. So I think what we might be seeing is the start of the end of the Conservative Party. I mean, we've just had the French elections and we have to remember, you know, that the two main French parties, mm. what did they get? 7% between them or something mm. like, and, and that's like relatively quick. We don't know what form this will take, but the Conservative Party, as it presently was trying to hold things together, was untenable, has been untenable, because most of the people who voted for Boris aren't Conservatives in any... I mean, they might actually be socially Conservative, but they're not Tory party types. Mm -hmm. And and they're also... They've broken with the Labour Party now, and there just doesn't appear to be anything that holds those people together. And you can see it with the different types of MPs that you've got. And this isn't just like the old alliance. So I think that maybe that's ending. I look at the Labour Party and I see no possibility of a resurrection of any sort. Mm. But Labour, labouring people, 
RMT strikes, all this. It's not like as though mm. that's resolved, right? And we're about to enter a cost of living crisis. And all around Europe, there are people, you know, taking to the tractors, to the roads, to the streets, all sorts of things happening. So the, so the real question is, has the populist instinct, and populist I mean it in the most positive sense, which is ordinary people saying we want to have a say in the way society is organised and take back some control, not just from Europe, but of our lives and be taken seriously. Whilst they're in despair at the moment because they feel they've lost that moment because Boris was their mistake in a way. But they, but they kind of go, it's like, we hate him, but we want to decide when he goes. So there's a bit of panic. Mm. But I think that the the instinct is is still there. And to, to give unheard it, it's credit as well. We've got to stop being nice to you. Um, you know, when Partygate was happening, one of the things that made it clear that the technocrats and the you know exist on all sides was we're trying to hold Boris Johnson to account for parties in Number Ten, mm. not the fact that people couldn't visit people in care homes, that 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 hospital visits were completely stopped, that we weren't allowed to ask questions about the suspension of civil liberties and emergency mm. powers or ask any difficult questions about that. Mm. And the reason I'm saying that is because that's why I'm saying it can't be a psychodrama because every single party and everybody at Westminster went along with all that lot. They went along with Boris on it, right? But Claire, I think one of the things you just said there is really quite potentially exciting, which is that if this leads to a kind of actual final death or serious demise of some of the bigger political parties, it's this thing we everyone always talks about and it never happens. And the whole the sort of cliche is that in the British system, we're so used to these two main, this kind of duopoly, and it just goes between them. And in fact, the last election had the highest share of the vote amongst just those two parties for decades. So in a sense, if you're right, that maybe, just maybe, this will finally break that kind of two-party duopoly, it could be quite another creative and quite exciting yeah, moment. It could be. I mean, the, the thing is, history, doesn't, fate doesn't hand you things, right? All I'm saying is, is that the populist instinct still exists. This could be a negative outcome, by the way, because people could develop a nihilistic uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, cynicism of yeah. a quite destructive nature. I mean, people are really fed up and furious mm. and seething, and that's always not good in a way. It's not always yeah. good, at least. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think I'll be alive to see the day when these parties collapse. I'm making the point that they can no longer hold it together in the way that they did. We have a Labour Party that does not represent anything about its historic mission mm -hmm. and therefore it has to go at some point it's just that it might take a while so I, I i don't want to sound as though i'm like unduly optimistic and being silly about the oh great we've got a chance now on the other hand those people who think everything will return to normal are the kind of people yeah. who said oh what a relief macron's safe all is well a few weeks later and it's like, oh, my God, the French people appear to be mm. not doing what we wanted them to do again. And they've now voted for Le Pen. How weird. So I think these things are bubbling under. And you've talked about America. Mm. Everyone's delighted. Biden's in. Trump's finished. The end of populism in America. And then it's like, oh, uh, uh, possibly not. Because what's happening is a shakeup of post-war politics. History's on the move. We just don't know which way it's going to go. And I mm. wish to influence it positively but i can't mm. guarantee it's going to be a positive outcome well you've talked about emmanuel macron mm. on marsh do you it seems like what claire was saying might resonate with that which is that maybe 
that kind of moment might be happening here. Do you think so? Is that Does that fit in with your sort of the worst fears of the revenge of the centrist dads, that maybe there'll be a kind of Emmanuel Macron figure coming up? I'm so, I'm, well, I, I suppose to contextualise it, I'm starting to see Brexit as a kind of um, Cromwellian kind of moment where you kind of have this failed revolution. There's a sort of settlement, which is m- much more of a fig leaf than a settlement, over this failed revolution. And then some sort of restoration occurs, which is the kind of historical analogy I was thinking of. Uh, and so I sort of, I, I think the House generally wins in Britain. It's quite powerful. And I do, I do wonder whether the on marche thing does happen here with a sort of um, collection of sort of, um, what's that guy called? David Gauck. What's he called? Gauck. Yes. Yeah, you know, you've got your Gawks, your Stuarts, all sort of clubbing together, big money behind them, big media, uh, Blair. And they just sort of come back and say, look, calm is restored. Mm. And I do know what you mean about the anger and all of that mm. stuff. But I do think, t- you know, We've gone through Brexit. We've gone through COVID. I actually think the turnout of the next election will be piddling. I think oh, people are so... I think they are just... This whole thing has disgusted them so do, much. Do you think, I disagree. Do you think they're exhausted, as, as well suggests? What I was going to say was that the, the pre-Brexit consensus that everyone is so tired of was a product of a very specific moment in you know, global economic and political history, which has gone mm. forever. We are entering a period of years, maybe decades of turbulence of a manner no one has experienced within living memory, right? Like, no one is prepared for, you know, the coming confrontation between China and the US. Like, what we're seeing now with, you know, the cost of living crisis, which is actually really a result of uh, uh, geopolitical tensions between the West and Russia, that is just the tiniest glimpse of what will happen when there's real great power confrontation. Mm. So we're going to see plummeting middle-class living standards that will probably never recover within people's lifetimes. Um, the idea that people go back to this kind of, you know, normal, Blairite, happy, you know, uh, optimistic consensus. In that- not, not happy and optimistic. But I would say, I, my, my only point would be that, you know, in the 20s and 30s, which is yeah. a similar time of strife, who, who's the Prime Minister for most of that Britain? I mean, it's Stanley Baldwin. It's an yeah. incredibly boring, sort of stable figure. Yeah, but you, 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 the, 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 all I was trying to say, my, my analogy with Macron was just, you know, when you read all of those editorials that said, oh, you know, peace is restored, Macron's yeah. back in, populism's over in France. And then like within three weeks, it was like, oh, um, possibly not. And what I'm trying to say is that people are wishing for things to be settled and calm. And you, even if that happens um, for, a, for a period of time, it's on top of a, a bubbling cauldron of, uh, and parties that cannot contain uh, events that are not just events, but sentiments that have been started. And I think that one of the things is, you know, like the, it's the way that people want to go to, well, can we go back to before we called a referendum when we all got on well and mm. it was all a nice thing? Well, they might have thought everything was fine before that referendum, but the point of the referendum result was it indicated that just because you didn't see it doesn't mean it was fine. Yeah. Now, some of this has come to the surface and circumstances are much worse for ordinary mm. people um, because we're facing a range of challenges to say mm. the least mm. so I, I i simply think that we've got to be open-minded and not and not assume that some kind of restoration is possible that's that's the way i see it i'm not pro, i'm not pro restoration <coughs> i know no i know yeah. you're not but, I, but i'm saying i don't think it's feasible mm. but i don't know what forms these things will take and i and you know i i it, people say who do you want to be the head of the tory party and you kind of you know i, I i've got so little interest in that in, in many ways but what i'm very keen to emphasise is just that Brexit 
what drove Brexit's not over. Mm. And it's almost like those people who don't understand that are missing the historic moment very badly. You mentioned the leadership race. We're not going to be picking candidates at this discussion or disappearing down that wormhole. And I agree at this stage it's kind of uninteresting. But if we can look at it more philosophically, what does conservatism actually mean now? I think that is something that it's remarkable how few people have an answer to. And if Mm. you spend any time talking to members of parliament, they don't especially either, Mm. I don't think. I wonder whether this leadership election that's going to come will expose any real deep thinking in that group of people. Probably not. It seems, at least if Boris Johnson is the evidence we have to go by, that it's a kind of fudge, a a, a bag of snakes of different kinds of instincts and impulses that don't necessarily go together. Some of them wanting to change things, some wanting to basically preserve the status quo. Are they liberals? Are they actually conservatives? Does anyone here have a sense of what the modern Conservative Party is actually for. I'm not sure there's much left to conserve. That's the (laughs) problem. So, again, going back to the American example, if you look at how the Republican Party is uh, developing, you could almost say, so, you know, people talk about it in uh, post-liberal terms. You could actually say it's post-conservative because what it's doing is it's pretty much openly reactionary in the sense that it's using the power of the administrative state just to roll back all the kind of uh, liberal innovations in the past decade. So we've seen abortion happen already. Um, that fusion of rather that sudden conservative realisation that actually the state is an immensely powerful tool and you can use it to impose your will on the nation. And you know your, your job isn't just to kind of quietly say, oh, you know, not... Not now, not yet, you know, trying to slow down the on the path of progress. I think... Do you think that's real and that staying? In the United States, I think that's real. And in the same way that uh, American political trends come to Britain, I, I would be very surprised. So you, your, your prediction, if that's what it is, is that the way the Conservative Party go, will go will be more what, authoritarian, will be more about grabbing the levers of the state. But yes, more status. I mean, look... Going back to you know global trends, talking about this, the state is going to be back in a big way. We're entering, like I say, a period of huge crisis, and the only way states will survive is by massively increasing their power. Sounds so, terrifying to me. You know, it's unfortunate, but that's the way we go, right? So, if that's the scenario, and I believe it is, then you have two options. You have your, you can have one party uh, in charge of the state and imposing their vision of. Uh, a good, well-ordered society, or you can have the other party do it. And, you know, whatever your political beliefs, you want your own side to win. Claire Fox, this is, is, this is kind of contained within the Brexit debate, isn't it? Whether those people in that group were for small government and government getting out the way, or whether they were actually for quite a big radical interventionist state. Where, where are you on this? Well, I, I, I think that that's it's sometimes discussed in that way. I, I don't think it was necessarily conceded that. I, I've always said that one of the things that in terms of state intervention before Brexit was that people were fed up of being done to in that kind of um, nanny state way. And I think that that continues. You know, they, they, they kind of felt that they'd lost their agency. And um, but, the, but the point that you're making about the big state, I think is certainly the state is, is grasping power to itself. And one of the 
terrifying things about the lockdown period was obviously that it learned how to it was it was justified in doing that everywhere internationally mm. and experimented with that and it's been hard to grasp that power back in terms model. of liberal yeah and well just you know the executive powers mm. that they wouldn't give back they still you know got the nudge unit all of these things you know mm. would well rehearsed before so not to repeat what i think though is different which is we, which we which we need to talk about what might emerge is what the argument is surely is then philosophically what the challenge to that should be mm. because is it that you you know it, i think we've got to stop thinking like the, the past you know so mm. if you can can we build new arguments around fighting for freedom and liberty and uh free speech and agency and autonomy without it meaning that you're saying that I don't want the state in my life, you know, I'm a big state or a small state person, you know what I mean? Because I, 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 I just end up feeling like I'm having an argument with the IEA or some free yeah. marketeers, and I'm not really interested in that. I would like the state to intervene in some instances. There's things the state could do purposefully that would be very positive and progressive as far as I'm concerned, mm. particularly in terms of um, uh, energy, uh, for example. They should be, they should be like ploughing ahead so we can have a cheap, efficient energy source. Mm-hmm. They, they could be having a massive, uh, uh, you know, they should be building towns, you know, not just yeah. like building yeah. new yeah. houses. Yeah. It's like, I want six Milton Keynes, thank you very much. Yeah. And if they led yeah. that, I'd be yeah. all with them, right? So yeah. I'm not like one of these people who thinks the state shouldn't have anything to do with it. But where the state is wielding its power, where it says, we're going to police everything you say, is there not? Except, so except that's that's right. I just want to yeah. throw one thought in here, which is, in a way, what you're saying is, yes to the power of the state but in order to improve people's freedom and agency so in a, in a yeah. sense that can be a test and maybe this is a new kind of conservatism or new kind of no, thinking no. where you say yes we should use the radical power of the state but only where it makes people have greater I, agency yes, over their yeah. so yeah. so going back to 2019 um if corbyn had got in so we had, you know, Sajid Javid, you know, in his resignation letter, kind of praising Boris for, you know, saving the country from the menace of Corbynism. If Corbyn had got him, do you think, do you not think he would have used the power of the state to the utmost extent? Of course he would. Mm. And you know what? Maybe he actually would have done a better job of it than Boris ever was capable of doing. At least we probably would have got, you know, nuclear power stations and, you know, nationalised uh, utilities and, you know, new towns and, you know, <laughs> housing infrastructure. The head of the armed forces, the head of the armed forces, MI5, MI6, like the entire sort of like British deep state, despised yeah. him. The yeah. civil service would have been exactly the same as they were with Boris and Brexit. Yeah. I mean, he he would have it would have been the same floundering situation. You know, anything mm. that the, the the British state thinks is an extremist, it will it will try and reject. It will try and eject. I think. But I, but actually, I, what, I, I, but this is I the Dom, sorry. this is the Dom sorry. Cummings. Yeah, line. So what you, you mean is actually. You're in favour of making the state more powerful, in other words, better, more productive, more efficient, more able to do things and function. I, I, I don't know. All, all, I, all I say is just to take it back very briefly to conservatism. They've accidentally somehow historically found three things which make them quite popular. They're all quite negative things. Keep labour out of power, uh, keep public order and um, keep property safe. That's steady state conservatism in this country. That's all they really do. But they don't they do it. Well, they're completely messed that up. Occasionally, they cut taxes. I mean, that, that's basically what they do. Yeah, but they haven't done that very successfully. No, no, that's, they're, they're not doing it very well. But that's what I think they generally sort of um, 
aim for. No, but and, that... and, and, and they'd also do what a, what a zoologist would call sort of aggressive mimicry, and they will steal things from other people. But there's a, the problem but that, is, is that, it, really. No, but you're, but you've, you've I'm not just, ambitious for them. No, but you, you've just made the point that you know if Jeremy Corbyn had got in, which I don't want to, you know, counterfactual history, but if he got in, these these forces would have set into play. I mean, one of the things that, and I don't want to sound like Jacob Rees-Mogg, but you know, there is a real problem with the civil service, which mm. is the sections of the state that are just at the moment refusing to do things. Yeah. And I mean, this is like a crisis, right? Mm. I mean, I hate the Rwanda project that is a scheme. You know, I don't like it, but I do object to people going, we're not doing that. And yeah. we work in the home office. It's like, what do you mean you're not doing that? And no wonder people get frustrated. And we know, I mean, I, I, I know that the issues around trans and gender and so on are quite controversial, but it's like a passive aggressive moment in the House of Lords, like people walking around with, particularly with lanyards, glowering at you if you're a gender critical person. He's thinking, the hell are you, right? And they're like in the bills office writing things. I mean, I've, all sorts of people all over, not just the Lords. I'm just saying there's lots of things going on where you feel as though there is no control. They've mm. lost control. So the state has lost control of bits of the state, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I don't think it's coherent at all. And to bring it back to Boris, his promise was to sort that out. Well, he was supposed yeah. to be the guy who brought the state back into yeah. function but, and but, but we, got but, rid of those Yeah, obstacles. but we know that actually he, because this is the difficulty that we've all got, is that he actually allowed a lot of these things to happen. In fact, sometimes encouraged mm. them and had no sensitivity to them going on. And, and that's the incompetence bit. But you keep asking about conservatism. I mean, I don't, I'm not a conservative and I don't care. I mean, what <laughs> I, I, no, but I don't care if they never find a philosophical heart again. I mean, that's, get over it. But I, but what I'm saying is new philosophical ideas have got to emerge in this period mm. that will offer people opportunities to choose between different options. Mm. Now, the difficulty at the moment is if people imagine that some kind of technocratic centrist dad moment will suffice, there, it's a bit like when you ban on free speech and you sort of say, you know, you ban an idea, it doesn't go away, it goes underground. Mm. If people pretend that you can kind of calm things down, it's all centristly lovely, all that they're doing is forcing people down rabbit holes mm. underground mm. and who knows what will emerge. And it doesn't always emerge in the way that one would want to in a positive way. Right. So I, I'm suggesting that we need to have, I mean, why wouldn't I say this? I'm the Academy of this have much more open debate and discussion, mm. these kind of discussions, mm. what kind of philosophical options should we give people? What kind of, um, and influence whatever shells of party are around. And I don't care what they look like. I'm not sectarian about that because I think they're all awful, but I'm just prepared mm. to keep giving them good ideas. And if yeah. they steal them, all the better. Yeah. We're gonna end with me asking one question to each of you, which is, is there anyone I'm not, we're not talking about picking favourite leadership candidates, but you can if you like. Is there anyone that you're excited about looking around the potential people who might replace him or even in the wider penumbra? Is there, is there anyone to feel hopeful about? Can anyone think of anyone? Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, a, that's well, telling that itself. Anyone but Tegan Hatton. No, I... Tell you <laughs> Uh, I could live with Rob. Uh, I'd be enthusiastic for Gove, but that's not it. That's the name. Claire Fox. I yeah, I think uh, goes over. But 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 if but he's got to be part of the government because the only one who knows well, how to is the only one who knows how to run much, anything, yeah. right? And and actually, what he's been doing in housing, just to make a point on the leaseholders question, which I'm passionate about, has been good. And every department he's gone and he's done something interesting. 
Why but I, but that, but because he's been completely all over the place and unreliable, and he 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 really did nearly sell out Brexit through compromise, and that was like unforgivable in my opinion. But anyway, look. Anyone else? Uh, I could live with Rob. The number of people who say this, and this is ridiculous, is David Frost is like one person that in the House of Lords has been actually genuinely like an interesting person mm. that you want to have a conversation with who seems to have some ideas, although he's, you know, the Tory guy. Steve but, Baker? That's yours, Freddie. No, I mean, look, <laughs> oh, yeah, look yeah. I get <laughs> it, I get it. And people would feel relieved and people don't want to remain it. And, you know, Tom Tuggenhardt. You know, I know that all these people will emerge and say, I know that I was a Remainer, but you can trust me on Brexit. It's like Starmer. It's definitely war if Tom's doing that But it's, but it's, no, but it's a militaristic moment. That's what I was going to say. Is they're all, they're all going to come out and say, trust me, I'm, I'm, I'm safe. There is no one. That's what's depressing. Will, give us a name. Anyone. No, no, yeah, no, definitely. I think, um, frivolous option. Uh, would finally exercise the ghost of Ma- Margaret Thatcher because she'd come in and ine- inevitably fail because she's not Thatcher. It would be Liz Truss. So I th- also think that would, the probably n- is this a sort of nihilistic impulse to no. see Maxim Carnage? It'd be fun or... to write about Maxim Carnage, Anarchy. Um... What about if you actually want the best for the, for the what for the country? country? And the fun world. to write about. I love that. Is it? I, I I don't. I, I'm kind of with Iris on the on the bleak world picture. I'm not sure it makes that much difference. Sorry. Well, thank you <laughs> to Aris Rissanos, Claire Fox and Will Lloyd. And thank you for tuning in. As you saw, I ducked the question of which person I would prefer for the leadership. Steve Baker. I don't know yet. I'm uh, observing with interest. Thanks for tuning in. This was Unheard Ideas. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow-up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.